episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike One, co-host also Mike in a moment, but today we have a special episode, another entry into our MMO interview series. We have the privilege and the honor of speaking with Ann Thompson, film journalist, critic, awards pundit, and editor-at-large over on IndieWire.com, Michael. Yeah, look, you guys uh, know how much we've cited Anne's work in the past, so we're absolutely thrilled she agreed to come on today. And I think it's kind of a cool story how it happened because, Mike, when quarantine started, it was uh, it was hard to turn off the Oscar season switch that we had going. Right. It, w- it was hard because we were struggling to find our footing with the programming. We were wallowing in too much news. We were not changing <laughs> our sweatpants. The movie calendar. I still haven't, yeah. <laughs> I me neither. But at least now I've <laughs> I've settled into the realization that I don't have to. Right. It's okay, right? But the movie calendar has since been stripped away from us, which is our lifeblood. The world was ending and I think there was this fateful production meeting that you and I had a couple of weeks ago where I forget who said it, but it was probably you where you were just like look, let's just do what we've always wanted to do. Let's just study what we want to study. Let's just have fun with these shows and with this programming slate, things that we think would make us happy. Let's try to talk to some of the people we've always wanted to talk to. And that's where Ann Thompson comes in. We had never asked her before. And that kind of production meeting sparked something in us where we're just like, hey, let's just let's ask one of our dream guests to come on and see if she'll do it. And she said yes, which is just delightful and, and wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's all been part of us trying to keep our own sanity during this quarantine. And in that vein, we hope that you are all uh, as well, staying yes. safe, staying healthy. And uh, hopefully we can aid you a little bit in staying entertained as well. Because absolutely right, Mike. Uh, Ann Thompson is someone we've always read, we've always listened to, we've always admired from afar. She's an awards expert and a film critic whose work we reference all the time here mm-hmm. on MMO and for good reason. Uh, she is much in the vein of Scott Feinberg, who we gush about as well, a quintessential Hollywood insider. She knows the industry back to front. She's on a very short list of people that if they started a cult, we would uh, become disciples. Yeah, without hesitation, if she passed us Kool-Aid, we would drink (laughs) said Kool-Aid. In all seriousness, though, uh, we'll pledge our allegiance further at the end of the show and tell you more about how to follow and find Ann Thompson's work uh, during that outro. But to bring this introduction to a thesis, Mike, uh, they just put out an episode this morning. Ann Thompson is currently the co-host of one of our favorite podcasts in IndieWire's Screen Talk. Yeah, so each week on Screen Talk, IndieWire's chief film critic, Eric Cohn, talks with Ann Thompson about the indie film world and beyond. They go from festivals to new releases and the future of the business. Uh, Highly, highly recommend you all listen to that as well. Yeah, it's a must-listen for Mike and I every week, so do yourself a favor by subscribing to them ASAP on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud especially, etc., wherever you find your podcasts. Yeah, so like Mike said, we'll give you more about Ann Thompson's socials and where to follow her and find her work uh, every day at the end of this episode. But for now, guys, sit back, relax, enjoy the MMO Interviews episode with IndieWire's Ann Thompson, and we will see you on the other side. All right, on the line right now, we have Ann Thompson from IndieWire. Ann, thank you so much for agreeing to do this with us. Big fans. My pleasure. Ann, uh, when quarantine started, Eric was threatening a Boonwell watchathon. Uh, and amongst other things, you were kind of hunkered down catching up on Emmy contenders. How, how's your quarantine doing? How are you doing? Do you have any more recs for us? I am watching some of my favorite shows. I, I love 
Homeland. Oh, cool. It's the the last season of Homeland, and and Carrie Matheson I adore, and Claire Danes. But I'm also really enjoying, believe it or not. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, this is this is yeah. People who know me know that I spend a lot of time on Twitter, um, and maybe too much. Um, and I just share what I think is important, uh, whether it's the you know COVID stuff or politics or or film. And I just find it really comforting, you know. And and a lot of people are diving into the classics, into the old movies that they love, you know, uh, sharing music that they love, you know, you just feel the community out there. The, it's, it's a film community. Film Twitter is a warm embrace that, that I'm really enjoying. And, and just looking at the videos that people are making and the kind of creativity that's out there, uh, it's just, it just warms my heart. I'm all by myself. I'm all right. Uh, my daughter comes over and hangs out at a distance on my patio and and we enjoy each other and I sort of lunge at her instinctively <laughs> and she says, Mom, get away, you know. <laughs> so, you know, she's very protective and she, she's making sure I, I fly right, you know, that I don't make any mistakes. So we're good. You know, I'm, I'm lucky that I have a patio, you know. A lot of people don't have that. That's for sure. And it's also very refreshing to hear someone come on and talk glowingly about social media and the role it's playing right now. So uh, it's good that you're getting the positive out of that. That's, that's quite uh, interesting to hear because that's usually not the norm from people we've talked to usually, or at least recently. But we're going to get into your bio and your career in a second. But just to start things off here, on your most recent episode, I think it just debuted this morning of Screen Talk, you asked this kind of existential question about the Oscars, and it's basically... Does the Oscars exist, and if so, what's it for? Obviously, this is a weird time, not only in social media, not only in the the film Twitter universe, but in just the world in general with COVID going on. What was the genesis of of coming up with that question, and have you gained any clarity on it since discussing it with Eric on your show? I'm really, I mean, we just did that yesterday, so it's pretty fresh. Um, we, the, the thing about the Oscars is that I feel very strongly, and I, I guess everybody knows I, I'm, a, I, I'm an Oscar watcher. That's my job, you know. I'm an awards pundit, whatever you want to call it, a predictor. Um, I, I work on the charts. I figure out what's going to do well and what isn't going to do well, and I've been doing it for years. So I'm very invested in the Oscars at the same time that I recognize that it's not a perfect show and that there are uh, lots of mistakes that have certainly been made uh, by the Academy in recent years as they try to sort of uh, bend themselves into a pretzel to uh, make the people at ABC happy and get good ratings and you know they try everything and and usually it, it really comes down to the movies that are available and there are amazing movies still to come this year and most Oscar years most of the the real contenders come in the last quarter after the fall festivals and what's the fate of the fall festivals what's the fate of Cannes where you know there's a whole industry around this you know movies that wouldn't really get good uh, leverage if they didn't have some awards steam uh, mm. behind them, you know. So it's it's really a big question. But I think what the Academy needs to figure out is is what what is their role and what why are they even existing? You know, what do they need to do uh, to rally everyone around a kind of uh, uh, save our film industry? Because if in case you haven't figured this out, our film industry is in serious trouble mm. and is going to have a tough time coming back. 
and uh, you know movies are showing on on streaming and and that whole process is accelerating and moving forward but um, the 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 question of two-hour movies in movie theaters is a big question indeed so that was a super scary question to lead with but uh, you gave some some measured hope and and certainly uh, a bit of a pep talk for the industry I love it so mm-hmm. and I think our audience can exhale now after after the headlines of that question but look you you help us program our show you know every year especially your coverage of the film festivals hyping up all the contenders so selfishly you know we wanted to go back in time and and kind of uh figure out how you've developed that eye for for a great movie can you take us back to when you first fell in love with films and and what were some of the movies that did it i grew up with a single father on the upper west side of manhattan my brother and i and he uh used movies as a babysitter um took us to uh, The New Yorker, The Thalia. You know, we spent time in the children's section of the Riverside and the Riviera trying to stay out of the way of the matrons with their flashlights. You know, we <laughs> we grew up on the Marx Brothers and Humphrey Bogart, and uh, we hated W.C. Fields because we were smart kids. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and so, so and by the time I got to high school, I was going to see the, you know, I was a little snob, you know, going to see Francois Truffaut movies and, and Godard and everything. Um, and then when I went to college, uh, lo and behold, my I figured it out very quickly. I wanted to be running the film society and booking the films from the 16 millimeter catalogs, Films Inc., you know, and, and stuff like that, you know, Janice, you know, I could tell you now, I, you know, which movies were available from which <laughs> distributors. And, and so that was my, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of dawning awakening that what I really wanted to do is study film. And I went to NYU and studied film and, and reviewed movies at the radio station and and uh, ended up working at United Artists in the publicity department. And uh, eventually, uh, Richard Corliss of Film Comment brought me to work there. And uh, that became the journalism side of, of the equation. I went back and forth a little bit and did some unit publicity on terms of endearment and the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, among <laughs> other things. You know, went to visit the set of George Romero's um, Night Riders with Ed Harris. Wow. It's the first time I met him. You know, these are these are great memories, and I had a great time. I mean, it was an extraordinary um, time in New York, and you know, we, we United Artists handled Woody Allen and and you know Heaven's Gate and all these. You know, we we there was a you know, Carrie a Network, Bound for Glory, uh, Rocky. You know, incredible movies, and um, I am showing my age, but that's. <laughs> That's the truth. I, I don't know about that last part, but the, the, the part before that certainly is, it's, it's inspiring, quite frankly, and it's really amazing you've been around all these, you know, big cinematic productions pretty much since you've been right out of college. We, we noticed in doing research, and you just said it here, you, you kind of started as a publicist, or at least were a publicist, before taking the foray totally into film journalism. I, I know as, a, as Oscar critics, we're supposed to ask you about Terms of Endearment, but Mike and I, uh, we have a soft spot in our heart for Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which we noticed you were a publicist <laughs> on. <laughs> so what happened was that I chased a man to Los Angeles, basically. I moved in with this guy who I eventually married, a critic, a film critic named David Chute, 
And so um, that was my first job that I got in L.A. I was working as the West Coast editor of Film Comment, but I needed to, to make um, a, a living. And, um, and, I, and, and John Carpenter was, was, was the producer. I had done, <laughs> I had worked on, as a publicist, I had worked on John Carpenter's Halloween 2. Oh, wow. And, I, and The Fog and uh, Escape from New York. Wow. And I will never forget going out to the Hudson River and, uh, you know, in a little boat with producer Deborah Hill and, and you know, the picture that James Hamilton took of Kurt Russell underneath the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> you know, these are, this was a great, you know, time. And so I went back to Deborah and, 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 and John and they gave me that job as the unit publicist on on what was a terrible movie. <laughs> One of the, that was a great lesson that all these people on the set and all these hardworking folks were just beavering away and, and somehow it all turned out very badly. <laughs> Like I said, I mean, it's one of those that it's it's so bad. It's it's good for us, and we like I said, we watch it every October ourselves. We've done a whole Halloween rundown. But how, so, how do you make the jump from the the publicist world to full time journalism and working at LA Weekly and and all these other stops you've had along the way before getting to IndieWire? When I was in New York, um, you know, Richard Corliss was a big champion. He had been the critic uh, at Time and and the editor of Film Comment. And that was an extraordinary time. And most, you know, it, it would be hard to imagine why I would leave, like, my dream job and only, um, you know, falling in love would be the answer. Why would I leave New York? Why would I have to learn how to drive in California? You know, <laughs> yeah, these are big questions. But I did fall in love and I did move to L.A. and I did publicity for a little while longer. But I ret- and I worked at Fox um, in the publicity department there. Uh, so I saw the insides of, of the studios and actually all of that access and, and understanding um, of how marketing works, you know, being in marketing meetings and strategy meetings, you know, at a studio is pretty amazing uh, experience to, you know, I, because I, I became interested in business reporting as opposed to being a critic. And uh, it was almost like my husband was the critic, so I was the other one, you know. <laughs> and um, and this man Stuart Byron, who used to live in in New York and work for the Village Voice, uh, was in L.A. And he and I got together, and we started a column called Risky Business for the L.A. Weekly. And it was eventually he 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 left us, and I continued alone. And that was a scary moment when I had to do it by myself because I really hadn't trained as a journalist, right. you know. Um, I had trained as a critic more. Uh, and so I learned it. I learned it right on the job, and it was tough, and, and I persevered. for. I, I did that for seven years. I had it syndicated with the L.A. Times syndicate, and I freelanced for EW and eventually went to work at EW. So that's what happened there. So that sounds like quite the uh, trial by fire. I wonder if for our audience, and well, this is, all right, this is a selfish question for us. Could you give us any, like, golden rules or governing principles or secrets that you picked up, especially early on there, that you, you know, you learned about how to cover this industry? You have to be a person of your word, I think, is Hmm. the most important thing. And you have to learn what the rules are in terms of creating trust with the people who are giving you information. And what I did do was really pioneer a lot of, of what, of, of box office coverage 
in in a different way that Stuart had helped me to to learn, mm. and and uh, also um, other people at Film Comment because I used to do the grosses gloss there, um, but also not just it was box office it was it was interviewing people like Spike Lee it was covering the independents mm. in a way that no one else had really covered them at the beginning. And um, and really um, uh, having my own voice once a week it looks like a luxury now. <laughs> I, 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 you think about it. I, I, I did other stories. I did other things, but I did put a lot of time and energy into writing one column in, in a week. Sure. And and uh, and I, you know, I ended up uh, freelancing for the New York Times business section and and doing uh, contributing to a column that they had. Uh, on um, the business of film. It was really fun. I, I had a great time. I didn't realize how lucky I had it um, in terms of having my own, um, you know, I could do whatever I wanted. I didn't have to pitch anything. I didn't have to get approval from anyone. Uh, I, I was edited, you know, but, but it was not uh, the kind of thing that exists at most staffs. And when I, when I went to work at EW, I learned the hard way what, what a real uh, magazine uh, was like. So your career does have, have many of these high-profile stops along the way, and you find a home, uh, ultimately, at IndieWire. I'm wondering, uh, you know, what about IndieWire has been such a good fit for you? Uh, you were able to write your book a couple years after joining there, which, which we love. I want to ask you about in a second. Uh, what about IndieWire made it work? I had been working at a lot of places like Premier, you know, long-term uh, magazine, and I figured out, um, I worked at, uh, I started the first blog at The Hollywood Reporter, mm. and then I was hired by Variety and I brought it and started a new blog there. Um, and what I was gravitating toward instinctively was online. I, I've always been sort of an early adopter just in terms of having computers and, <laughs> and you know, back in, in the early 80s, you know, really early having a, a, the, the early models of computers and stuff. Anyway, so I ended up um, gravitating toward blogs and, and toward, uh, again, I think I was trying to recreate that freedom that I had uh, at the sure. column, but it, it was, it was it, people um, in the, who were involved in the print part of of these publications were, were kind of horrified, uh, I think, uh, threatened a bit by, by what I was doing. And, and I ended up um, leaving Variety, not voluntarily, um, and uh, Eugene Hernandez, uh, the extraordinary uh, man who co-founded IndieWire and, and made it work over many years, understood that I could bring not only whatever my voice was to, to IndieWire and that it would work because I was a champion of the independence, but but that I would be uh, able to do the Oscar coverage too. And there's money there, <laughs> there's advertising there. And it worked, it all worked. At first it was revenue sharing and I, was, I had my own blog and it was mine and I was running a little business. But um, eventually uh, when Penske Media bought IndieWire, uh, I became a, a member of the staff like, uh, and it's worked really well. It's been a great, great, great relationship. And I'm very lucky too because everybody was smart about how to how to make it work, how to succeed, and how to build an audience and pivot to television and, and bring all the film fans along with it and make it work for the consumer as well as the trade. 
So it, it's really a clever thing that Induwar uh, was and is. You seem to have this this path as a disruptor. You, you're doing things kind of that you said to yourself, kind of scared people and was against the grain and hadn't been done before. You're, you're teaching yourself these things and how to do these professionalisms along the way. Do you think that's been one of your assets in, in establishing your voice and what it is and, and this great legacy that you've, you've led here? Uh, absolutely. Um, I don't know... Um, how else to describe it but that I see things <laughs> you know I, I don't think of myself as being a brilliant person at all I'm not one of the best writers who ever lived I'm I've I learned a lot and I I figured out I, I, I one of the things I did figure out was that writing was something that you could get better at if you worked at it you would you would improve and I totally have improved since the beginning but I will, I will say that I saw, I see things, um, I intuit things, I recognize things in a, in a, in a smart way. And that's, that the, the online side of journalism is one of them. I think it's partly just out of experience. If you have a, a bad experience, it's like e- eating food that's bad for you. You know not to do it again. Um, <laughs> Premier was a really tr- traumatic experience to watch this extraordinarily vibrant publication be badly published uh-huh. uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't just the editing it was the publishing side and and mm-hmm. it was really good people there really extraordinary quality of, of journalism and I just saw that 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 the magazine world was was threatened and I learned that I saw what the problem was and they refused to go online they re- can you imagine if premier magazine all those archives were online somewhere they don't exist they don't exist and if they had kept that going and if they had done it right it could have been a very vibrant thing and in a weird way i think indywire is supplying some of that it's just that we have to do this fast churn kind of writing that isn't as as long form it's harder for us to to really dig into uh, that long form quality journalism that that used to exist and i think uh, very few writers today come up learning that kind of journalism well uh, one of the things about the book that was so much fun is that you went from festival to festival and you went from you know every major event on the film calendar year and gave us the backstory and the history of each one of those major events and and you're essentially doing that every year with with IndieWire. I mean they they send you guys around like a globe trotting James Bond movie. I mean you're still covering every festival <laughs> and uh, it's I love the festival. Oh, does it ever it's get so old? So fun. No, absolutely not. It's the perk <laughs> of of my life. It's a, I'm really sad about Can. Really sad that that Can as it's, I mean, I'm assuming it'll come back next year. Um, I'm assuming they'll come up with something European that they're going to do to, to maybe in concert with Venice uh, to 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 celebrate there. They're going to do what I'm saying the Oscars should do, which is to help bring back movies in in their uh, countries. But but um, I don't think um, I I will ever stop loving going to film festivals. It's it's my joy to 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 be in a room and discover a movie, to discover a filmmaker, you know, to be at Sundance and and watch Ben Zeitlin's Beasts of the Southern Wild for the first time or to be in Cannes and see Steven Soderbergh's Sex Lies and Videotape, mm. you know, play in the Palais or or Dancing in the Dark or any number of, you know, the piano any number of movies that just knocked your socks off. It's, it's, there's nothing like it. 
You're describing a cinephile's dream, certainly. So I guess let's start working our way around the calendar of festivals that we have been fortunate enough to have for 2020 and ones that seem to be moving elsewhere. Obviously, the fall festival slate is in doubt, but we did have Sundance. Uh, and we've had recent hits from Sundance, like Get Out and Call Me By Your Name, those sustained legs to go through their award season, even though they were debuted early in the year at Sundance in January. We had no Best Picture uh nominee come out of Sundance last year do, do you think that was a blip or is it kind of a start of a new trend can a film like Minari become these these long distance runners and finish through award season or has Sundance kind of become evolved into something more niche and less award seasoning mm, that's a good question and I would say that the narratives coming out of Sundance have not managed to rise to the Oscar level, although I would say, you know, The Big Sick did it and uh, Manchester by the Sea did it. That doesn't mean that those movies couldn't be there. I have a feeling that what's going on is that the market, uh, at least it had, become more competitive for the top titles and so people were buying them earlier and 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 uh, getting into, uh, you know, you have Amazon and Netflix uh, picking up some of the good stuff and um, the the Sundance of it all is is more in the direction of documentaries. Minari hmm. is a very very good movie. Um, it's it it. I hope that A twenty four figures out a way. It's just going to be. This is a ex- perfect example of the kind of movie that is going to be really hurt this year. You know because it doesn't have a chance. What if they had been planning to take it to Cannes right. uh, to get some more buzz on it, like Fruitvale got? say or you know to take it to to the fall festivals and and really work it um maybe they would have opened it in the summer and gotten a, a big uh, uh farewell style uh release with with some you know it, you know impact from from being a winner at the box office but it, it's a delicate flower and it's so hard to imagine what's going to happen when all these movies, there will be some movies that move back to 21 for this reason, but the smaller movies are going to have a tough time competing because there's so much crowding going on, I think, when everybody comes back in the fall. It's like the uh, ecosystem of this film festival circuit, of the of the film business, has kind of been severed and paused, and, and everything that you described in the book is, is totally different now, and I guess that segues into what South by Southwest is going to do we think partnering up with amazon prime perhaps offering up some films you know for public viewing what do you make of that play i appreciate that janet pearson and the south by team you know wanted to do what they could um for the movies that weren't able to debut uh, and get attention and build buzz um at south by um the question there that i've heard raised in a couple of uh places is why didn't Amazon just buy the movies, you know, mm. acquire them hmm. and show them? You know, how much would it have cost them to just give the movies a proper release? Because this way, it's like they've shown, but they've lost value hmm. as potential uh, uh, titles that would be picked up by someone else. That's, that's and, a uh, really fascinating point, yeah. 
Yeah. So it's it's a it's a it's it, I I totally appreciate the impulse and the and Tribeca is doing something, uh, uh, their version of this and and uh, you know there's there's all sorts of experiments really going on in terms of of uh, giving movies uh, the equivalent of of what a festival launch would be, um, and it's it's hard to watch because it's uh, to me it's painful because I, I think a lot of these movies are have just pull the short straw, you know, they're, they're not going to get what they should have gotten to get where they should have gone. So has the, is the overexposure the main concern of these studios from what you've heard? Because I mean, there's, there's scarce reports and articles out there. I read one last night that there was fear on the filmmakers' parts about what Amazon Prime is trying to do because they feel like it's just going to be a total loss of revenue. And it's because of the overexposure they think they're going to be subject to if they give it to Amazon Prime with unlimited repeat viewings. So I guess you're saying if Amazon just bit the bullet and made an investment, you're hearing there might be a more willingness to just let the titles go and have them be Amazon's now? I don't think that's true. I, I, I think that Amazon is is making um, um, a, a gesture of support and showing these movies for a short period of time but they're still for sale they're still mm-hmm. available for some other distributor to pick up i'm saying that if amazon had picked them up directly for in the first place and just put them on the site forever um you know or for whatever term they were sold for you know they could they could uh, really be seen by a lot of people um for a long time isn't that better to just buy them outright acquire the rights it certainly it. seems like a win-win. Absolutely. I don't know. Um, that's just a, a thought. Um, it, 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 I'm not criticizing South by at all. I mean, I think it's great that they got a place to show the films, and hopefully they'll get they'll find homes. That would be the ideal. Yeah, Mike and I were wondering if they were just gonna, you know most of these filmmakers were just going to pull out, and it was going to be you know bare bones what what we eventually got to to see from South by. But uh, to moving on to Can, I guess for a minute. You talked about Cannes in your book about having the most robust film market, and coincidentally, their audiences also give the longest standing O's. So I, I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, I'm wondering uh, how, you know, they're they're supposed to uh, unveil details on that virtual market soon. Tribeca's about to have it next week. How much will these virtual markets suffer? Uh, from a lack of public screenings? Do you think? Well, I think what's going on is that the sales agents are really um, wanting to see these movies in, you know, play to an audience. It's a fascinating thing. Sometimes you don't, uh, as I said on the podcast, sometimes you don't realize what you've got until it's gone, mm. you know, um, like uh, Joni Mitchell or whatever. <laughs> um, so so it, it, you really, you really um, don't realize that, that they they use these festivals to, uh, as you say, give give the, well those standing of the joke we're making about those standing ovations in Cannes is that they're sort of meaningless <laughs> because they're so <laughs> long. But uh, it's it's a it's true, and and they need to see how how movies play, and and they the, the part of what's going on now is that nobody knows the value of anything mm. because we don't know what the future is, and we don't know what it holds. Mm. So what is a movie worth? Where is it going to sell? Where is it going to play? How is it going to play? I mean, even, sorry, but even on the big studio level, isn't it possible 
that if we come out of this and there's only a few uh, cinema chains left and there's fewer, you know, there's shuttered theaters all over the, the world and, and there's, you can't open in as many theaters. We might go back to what it used to be like where there were fewer theaters and, and you couldn't open a movie and make a billion dollars around the world, you know? And if you can't do that and you can't make all your money back, if you're Milan or, or, or Tenet or Dune, mm. you know, and you can't make your money back on the budget that was, was originally conceived of, um, how, how, how are, they can't make those movies anymore. Seriously. Yeah. Mm. So, so that's, that's, that's the world where we're, we're going to look around and, and see a, a dramatically, I mean, just as the whole world is going to be different, so is the movie business. Well, I, and I guess the easy follow-up question to that, which is impossible to answer, is so what's the fix? And I asked that half tongue-in-cheek and, and half seriously because your last episode of Screen Talk was talking about how the Oscars should, and, and I happen to agree, and I think it's a, it's a great ideal to work towards, the Oscars should kind of pivot to being like this massive fundraising effort for the film industry. So uh, I get more ideally, what would that, what would something like that even look like? I don't know why I see this so clearly that this is what they should do um, and it should be because the Oscars are global because they represent countries all around the world and people all over the world watch them it's one of the few unifying moments and to throw that away would be a huge shame and to get hung up on making it sing at ABC you know would be uh, you know, worrying about the ratings or something. Right. This could be a way to get the ratings if, if it were, you know, marketed correctly. That's where I get worried about the Academy because I just don't see them understanding, you know, social media. You know, this is the criticism that Michael Schamberg was making in, in Deadline yesterday. Um, one of the producers who's angry at, at the Academy uh, for maybe for not listening to him but you know that's happened before <laughs> um so so he's but but the point that he makes is good that they're really not very very savvy about social media nor are they very ambitious about all the different things that they could do and this is a time for them to be ambitious and i guess what i worry about is that the that the all the when they have their board meeting and and all, and, the, and the 53 governors get into their zoom meeting or you know and and try to discuss this um <laughs> how the hell are they gonna you know they have made so many mistakes in the past how are they going to come up with the right thing now and uh and that's going to be that's going to be really interesting uh to see what they decide i i hope they i hope they see it this way i hope they move in this direction it seems like the obvious thing to do to me but i'm not them so I guess the uh, the follow up to that is, I get Netflix and Amazon Prime seem to be the biggest beneficiaries of this entire uh, pandemic. Uh, you know, I, I hate to put it that way, but it does seem to be true. They're gaining power and they're gain, they're making t- a ton of money. Streaming services have been gaining clout at the awards uh, in in past years. Uh, Netflix made a big play last year, came up a little short. Maybe they didn't have the right movies, but they've done very well at the emmys are what do you think the role of a streaming service like netflix is going to be in this whole puzzle i mean could we have the oscars broadcasted on netflix or will we just have you know a netflix dominated oscars at some point 
You know, you're you're right that this that what that what's happening is 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 that all these trends that we're already heading in a certain direction have been accelerated in a huge mm. way. What I do know about Netflix and about Ted Sarandos, the content chief there, is that he really loves movies. He cares deeply about movies. He's on the he's a he's an academy member. He wants to be on the board. They've never voted him in. Um he he but they have money they have the money to support a mike a martin scorsese movie and i wouldn't be surprised if they don't come in and save um what's it called uh Pat, the killers of the flower Moon. The, thank you the yeah. title i can always stumble over <laughs> um you know the the leonardo dicaprio uh, robert de niro movie it, it's it's really going to be um uh, fun to see uh what they do uh, step up to. They're giving money to to artists in France. They've they've got like a they've raised the money that they're giving to the industry to help uh, workers. 150 million. They're in a position to to do that. Um, and they're gonna you know they're trying to do the right thing. Uh, a lot of the people at the studios are are um, have unfinished movies and and movies that they can't show in theaters and they're selling them to Netflix. Uh, so I think that things are going to shift a bit. As much as the studios have been threatened by Netflix, at this point they have to recognize um, that Netflix is here to stay and, and is in a position to be uh, helpful. I think in in the end, um, you have to get you have to get ahead somehow. You have to sell your movies somehow. You have to get them shown and seen somehow in this situation. And, and uh, everybody sees that now. Do you think the Academy smiles on Netflix? for? Do you, do you think they see them as like a saving grace in this scenario where they are coming in and swooping in to buy up these films that were supposed to have theatrical runs? Uh, the Academy. Well, the Academy is, is as I said, the the it, eight, you know, it, over eight thousand people, almost nine thousand people, uh, and they're not a monolith. They're all very different, and you know, the governors represent the seventeen branches, three each on that uh, board of governors, and and they are um, all, you know, representing different factions. I mean, you have you have all the below the line uh craft people the the vfx people you have the actors and the writers and the directors it's just like a a hodgepodge of different people um from the industry um and they don't all think alike and they don't you know some of them are really threatened uh, by netflix the theatrical distributors basically the studios are the 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 uh, Tom Bernard and Michael Barker's of Sony Pictures Classics, or the Focus Features, or Fox Searchlight people like that. Right. They're they're very threatened by Netflix, um, because they're still invested in the theatrical business. Now let, let's think about Fox Searchlight. They're at Disney, right? They've been bought. They're they're still you know they're going to be giving some of their movies to Hulu. That is what's going to happen. Hmm. Uh, there's some movies on the Disney schedule that haven't been slotted yet. You know, are they going to give one of those Fox movies, like uh, The Woman in the Window, to Hulu? Uh, the, the, these are the questions that are being asked out there right now. It's going to be fascinating. Uh, but Disney has that option, um, and they're under duress because of, of the cruise ships and the the problems with the the theme parks you know they're 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 really hurting uh they've had to lay off a lot of people furlough a lot of people they need to make money somehow um so the trolls world tour 
uh, release uh, that Universal innovated, uh, going straight to uh, premium VOD, mm-hmm. it did very well. It did very well. It was the numbers are good, as far as we can tell. So um, other studios may be doing that now, and and paving the way for learning how to make money without marketing movies to theaters. And you guys at IndieWire have been all over the charts, and, uh, and we're so grateful for it because, it, you know, yes. in in months previous, we we would never know those charts that they just weren't being publicized, or at least to our to our knowledge. And I'm glad you appreciate it. We have to give credit to Tom Brueggemann. Mm. This man is a smart, enterprising guy. Can you imagine? You've been covering the the box office your whole life. You know, always invested in those Sunday numbers, all the people mm-hmm. who are like him, who have done that. And he had to come up with another way of looking at it, and he did. Yeah, it's amazing, and he does an amazing job. So I guess my final question, and then Michael have a serious one and then a fun one for you. I, my final question is something like Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, a movie that Mike and I reviewed, we loved, we thought should have Oscar legs in any year. That got that VOD home premiere as well. Do you have... Any read on how how Never Rarely Sometimes Always did? My sense on that, um, sometimes we can tell, um, this is terrible, we can tell how movies might be doing by how how much traffic they get on (laughs) IndieWire. I mean, it's one way of looking at it. But um, that's a movie that needed to be in theaters. That's a movie that really had beautiful reviews, incredible acclaim out of Sundance and Berlin and... Um, it just uh, really um, needed to be in theaters and build word of mouth and and it's a tough movie and a beautiful movie it didn't register on those charts that you're talking about Mm. but it wouldn't I mean it's an art film it's a small film and it would have been in art house theaters and it would have been building slowly Um, and and I, I think it's a shame that it didn't get more uh, time. I think it was in theaters for three days or something, four days <laughs> before it got pulled. Um, and they'll. I know that they're that A twenty four is going to bring back First Cow in, in theaters, and and uh, Sony Pictures Classics has defiantly, you know, declared that they will bring all their movies back in theaters that that got pulled. Um, so they they believe in the theatrical experience. In other words, the Eliza Hitman movie will will likely be an indie spirit and Gotham contender. I'm sure mm-hmm. they will fix the rules so that it is eligible for the Oscars and Emma. But Emma would be the one that's more likely to to register with Academy voters in my humble op. Do you hear that, Which- Mike? <laughs> I've been telling Which, you that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to say that'll make my co-host smile that to hear that from from the a professional the likes of, of Man Thompson. But I, I guess uh, we'll, we'll start wrapping up here. And again, we can't thank you enough. So, like Mike said, I'll I'll hit you with a, a serious question, and it's going to take me a bit to amble on about it. So I apologize for the preamble, but we do like to shine the spotlight here uh, as often as we can about some of the flaws going on systemically. Uh, and we can only add so much insight and, 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 you know, watching this industry from afar like we are as we're based on the East Coast, which is really right next to L.A. So really, we're right in the <laughs> thick of it. But now we're 3000 miles away. But we, we do like to look at the, the oppressed and, and the people held down and the systemic oppression that women have faced in the industry for decades and specifically female directors. Uh, despite progress that has been made recently, our response seems to repeatedly be along the lines of great job. 
why did it take so long and why isn't it more? And I'll give you an example. There was that USC study that came out last year that cited something like 14, I think, of the top 100 grossing films of 2019 were directed by women, which was the highest number in the top 100 ever. And our reaction was, great job on the progress. Why did it take until 2019 to get to where 14 women had that sort of opportunity? And why is it still only 14 women uh, given those chances? You being someone who has been a professional studying this industry for years, I'm wondering how, when you hear those notes, how do they resonate with you, who has been, you know, decades at all sorts of parts and all sorts of professions within and around this industry? Do you find yourself more inspired by the positive, or do you find yourself more deterred by the fact that the industry is only where it is, despite the fact that it should be so much further along, like society in general, quite frankly? All right, so 2017 happened, and I've been watching the industry for years and years and years, and I have been dismayed all along mm -hmm. by the lack of progress that women were making, because um, it, was, it, it wasn't changing that much, right. um, women behind the camera, and even um, the content, even you know um, how women were, were presented on screen. I remember when Zero Dark Thirty happened, for example, um, there were so many people who were really upset by that movie and didn't like that movie. And it was a woman who was smart, who knew her job, whose identity wasn't based on how um, she was perceived uh, by a romantic interest. Right. Um, she didn't have one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she was like a guy doing her job. And it was it was a great movie. And um, and I, I still think uh, under undervalued partly for those reasons. And um, 2017 really was a remarkable thing uh, to have uh, to have the the uh, Me Too Times Up thing uh, just playing out in real time and not just going away but continuing. People going to jail, people people losing their jobs uh, because of their terrible uh, abusive behavior. Um, so, uh, but that also went with it, the, the, the call to action across the industry and there has been progress. The agencies look for talented women directors and writers. The, the, um, the scripts are making some progress in terms of the content and the way women are, are shown on film. And there are more uh, Reed Moranos um, and Eliza Hitman's uh, moving forward. Um, you know, it, it's, there are a lot of great women who didn't get a chance uh, to do what they could have done, uh, but we're trying to address that now. Um, and I, I, I'm, I think television again is is a as is one bastion for women now that uh, the problem has always been that the studios were unwilling to trust uh, women with big budgets and uh, and they always had a default position that a big um, and despite the numbers, the numbers were totally contrary to this widely held conventional right. wisdom that men drove the box office. It's really not true, um, but but that's I think those I think that everybody has opened their eyes and become much more aware uh, of what the reality is, and they're trying to put women into writers' rooms, and they're recognizing that when women are in movies and uh, represented well in movies, that movies do better than they do otherwise. And so that's the future, hopefully. 
it's your lips to God's ears certainly hopefully is uh, something we can cross our fingers for and it's it's enlightening and invigorating to hear that there is uh, so much hope underlying the the belly of all this and hopefully progress keeps on continuing on so we promised we would end uh, on a not so serious note and once again and it has been our pleasure and our honor. We cannot thank you enough, and you have a standing invite uh, should this quarantine go on. If you want to come on MMO anytime, the floor is yours. Definitely. It's fun. It's fun talking to you guys. We talk the same language. That's always a pleasure. You know the, You know what I mean. Right. We do appreciate you giving us your time. But all right, hypothetically speaking, let's say we do see the end of this COVID craziness and the world does return to whatever normalcy is, and we're all back in theaters at some point, and we're watching the highs and the lows, and... Anne Thompson goes to the theater one day. She goes to check out a screening. What would be the hypothetical worst movie that could possibly be shown to Indie Wires and Thompson? <laughs> so, first of all, I am not one of those people who goes to see everything. I go out of my way to avoid seeing bad movies. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and every once in a while I make a bad judgment or I have a story assignment or my curiosity gets the better of me and I see something really horrible, you know. So let's say that my idea of hell would be an ear-splitting Michael Bay male yuck-yuck action comedy, a pain and gain meets dumb and dumber and hot dumb tub time machine. Wow. Starring Mark Wahlberg, Rob Corddry, Andrew Dice Clay, Chevy Chase, Michael Rispoli, Ken Jeong, Crispin Glover, and as the inevitable babe leaning over in short shorts, Jennifer Fox. So- wow. <laughs> I like that. You really went for it. That was like a hit list. That's a scary one. Uh, thank you again, Ann. This was uh, this was wonderful. I mean, we had all these burning questions pent up, and uh, it was so cool to hear some of your origin story. So uh, on behalf of our listeners, just uh, thanks again. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime. I'm exhausted. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye, guys. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. See you. Cannot thank Ann Thompson enough for giving us all of her knowledge and insight. Really just a spectacular interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have been big fans of hers, like we said. And you, dear listener, be sure to follow Ann Thompson at A.K. Stanwick. Yes, like Barbara. A-K-S-T-A-N-W-Y-C-K on Twitter. You could also read all of Ann's work on IndieWire.com backslash V, backslash Thompson on Hollywood, backslash. Or you can just Google Thompson on Hollywood and using all O's for vowels there. That's an easy way to remember it, and you'll find it right quick. Bookmark IndieWire.com. Check it every day. Read it every day like we do. You can be like your favorite Mike here. Uh, (laughs) Anne's latest article is on how France is supporting its film industry during a global crisis, which she kind of touched on a little bit in our talk just now. She's recently done pieces about virtual press junkets, how the Oscars 2020 slate is hanging in the balance and the steps Disney has taken during the pandemic. All of that has been done by her in just the past two weeks and you kind of got a preview of all of it as well with our talk with her here today. And guys, go read her book, The $11 Billion Year from Sundance to the Oscars, an inside look at the changing Hollywood system. That's available on Kobo, Google Play Books, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, etc. Mike, she forecasts all of the stuff that's happening now, you know, not the pandemic or whatnot, but maybe she does. I haven't gotten quite to the end of it yet, but Mike, <laughs> she forecasts like the uh, the home VOD premieres. There's a section on that. There's a section on China's emerging markets. There's, there's all kinds of stuff stuff 
that uh, she was all over, you know, six, seven years ago. I hope she'll write a sequel at some point, but go go seek that out. And, and like Mike said, you know, you, you got to be all over IndieWire. It should be one of your go-to film websites and that podcast, IndieWire Screen Talk with Eric Cohn. It is in our regular listening rotation for a reason. Uh, it's, it's where we get a lot of serious insight and w- something that we rely on on a weekly basis. So those will be my words of wisdom today because all of that is wise. Very wise indeed. And we give our thanks one more time to Ann Thompson. And now, dear listener, it is on you. We want to hear your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, as always, about anything we talked about here with Miss Thompson, as well as anything else we do here in the MMO universe. You can reach out to us and leave us those. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, including and especially Apple Podcasts. And if you've listened to Screen Talk on Apple Podcasts, if you'd be so kind to click over to Mike, Mike, and Oscar. And if you give us some of your time during this quarantine and let us try to entertain you, if you appreciate the work that we are doing here, if you wouldn't mind taking 10 seconds to leave us a five-star review, those would truly help us out a lot. Michael, you've graced us with your words of wisdom what do we have next from mmo for the good people so you know to uh bring this full circle after our introduction you know we have a fun retrospective coming up on kevin costner's draft day mike and i are both you know big nfl fans in our spare time in our past lives and we love to hate this movie and we hate to love this movie so we have another expert guest that's perfect for this review we think she's a nfl sports writer from one of our favorite websites joining us we think we hope again we're not going to give away who it is because what if it falls through but mike (laughs) uh we're gonna you know again do something that's fun. Do something that we've long wanted to do. And uh, we're going to keep doing our Mike, Mike, and Oscar weekly episodes. We always have fun with those. You guys always have fun with those as well with our Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game, Six Degrees of MMO that we play every week. And there's a ton of news. It's stacking up already. We covered some of it uh, on today's show with Ann. So I, I loved how this uh, interview worked. It was it, We got our origin story. We asked a million burning questions. And we got a a lot to cover this year no matter how it shakes out so mmo weekly oscar race checkpoint when we get into award season those are our you know every, every week shows that uh keep you guys up to date and we have a lot of fun this is the only time i plan on being happy with anything concerning the nfl draft this week because <laughs> i am not thrilled with what i've been reading lately about the giants well, you never are, and I. And I we got to expect that they're going to pick the the last guy we want. We just have to expect it. I hate. Well, <laughs> we'll see. I'll reserve that the end of that sentence until the end of the weekend. But guys, for now, when reality sucks, <laughs> you can come watch movies, hang out, and uh, chat with some cool people with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar, trying to make award season year round without the stuffiness. We will see you very soon. See you.